The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I was glad when they said unto me, we will go into the house of the Lord. It is a bit perplexing to me to realize on this, the actually the fifth Sunday after Trinity, 2013, as designated by our, or as it would have been designated by our former prayer books, <clears throat> that it's been nearly a quarter of a century, as Whitney has pointed out, since I first addressed a congregation here at St. Stephen's on our anniversary Sunday. And also, by the way, that this will be my final opportunity to do so as parish historian. As our familiar hymn this morning, which will be sung at the next service, asserts, time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all our years away. They fly forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Upon a few of these occasions, I have greeted you with the same words as this morning. I was glad when they said unto me, we will go into the house of the Lord. That was the usual beginning for the order of daily morning prayer, a service which I still recall with considerable affection as our regular Sunday service prior to the adoption of the present prayer book in 1979. A little more, but I hope not too much about this later. When entering our church through the narthex, you may notice a small signpost in the nave, which having first blessed your arrival with the Latin words, Pax Vobiscum, then affirms that this is the house of God, and he is here. We usually pass by it a bit too rapidly, I think. It next informs us of something of the, something of the real significance of our entry and suggests what we might first do. That a personal prayer is in order. I didn't stage this on purpose, by the way. <laughs> that a personal prayer is in order just for the very privilege of being here. A blessing in and of itself. We are indeed in his holy temple, no matter what the immediate purpose of our coming here might have been. It is always first and foremost, foremost God's house. And I think a very special one at that. It has 
been both my pleasure and honor to speak with you about the long story of St. Stephen's past upon these anniversary occasions during my tenure as historian, but cautions and reservations are important. The late Daniel Borston, certainly among the most significant American historians of the 20th century, at least in my judgment, has defined history as both the course of the past and the legible account of the past. And he then continues that the historian sets himself a dangerous and even an impossible task. And he quotes the phrase of the great Dutch historian J.H. Huizinga. He, the historian, is a wrestler with the angel. <clears throat> Luke's Gospel this morning for the fifth Sunday after Trinity tells of Jesus' encounter with a few of his soon-to-be disciples by the Lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee. The outcome of this event was both miraculous and frightening for those humble fishermen. And Luke informs us that Jesus assures them that they need fear not, for henceforth they shall be fishers of men. And when they had brought their ships to land, they forsook all and followed him. This is the beginning of a true story that did indeed change <clears throat> the world. And on a much smaller scale, it is also the story of Samuel Johnson and the founding of what was later to become St. Stephen's Church in Ridgefield. Johnson, Connecticut's first Anglican church clergyman, was also a fisher of men when he came and arrived here from Stratford in 1725. And just look at what happened after that. My sermons over the years have traced the footsteps of many fishermen and women who on this very site have carried on the imposing tasks that Jesus and his friends undertook, undertook so long ago on the shores of Gennesaret. And in particular, of course, of Johnson, his later efforts, and of those who followed his lead here in Ridgefield. St. Stephen's today is their miracle. And now, of course, it is ours as well. And so the miracle goes on. 
as in the days of our forebears, there have been and will continue to be sizable bumps in the road. Their burdens were hardly easy, and ours, past, present, and future, have not been, are not, and never really will be without perils and pitfalls. All of us should keep this in mind, I think. To live the word of God and pass it on is our chosen mission, and we must try to be up to that considerable task. Not so easy, not even to consider is it easy, let alone to then resolve to do so on the morrow and the next day and the day after that. Wow, quite a charge for us, quite a responsibility. On a more personal note, when my wife Beverly and I first arrived in Ridgefield and joined St. Stephen's Church back in 1958, this was a town of merely 5,000 people, a grand total of two public schools. A half century later, we are some 26,000 and no less than nine public schools. Our current Episcopal Church building which is this one, our fourth, in service since 1915, was basically staffed in those days by a rector, one Aaron Monderbach, an office secretary, a sexton, a choir master, and an organist. And that was it. Growing pains would prove considerable at times in the years ahead, not exactly a picnic for either church or the larger community of Ridgefield itself. In the next few decades, St. Stephen's acquired South Hall and the so-called barn, made massive and very expensive renovations to North Hall, added several acres of property out back, some of which Aaron used to like to refer to as the back 40. We also hired our first curate, acquired the house on Pound Street, built our beautiful crypt downstairs and moved the altar forward, which was not a small deed, considering that it weighs two tons. And while we were doing all this, we increased our outreach missions as well. Other challenges confounded us, but we were, indeed, back in those days, a-going fishing with no lack of faith, hope, and determination. But it was not only 
our demographics or property and staff adjustments that seemed at times overwhelming. The National Episcopal Church underwent significant changes, not always easy for us to accept and adapt to. Not here, not throughout the whole wide land. The new book of Common Prayer of 1979 and the hymnal soon to follow required considerable introduction, study, patience, and understanding. Traditionally, Episcopal churches had Holy Communion as the main service only on the first Sunday of the month. Some of you will remember that. With morning prayer on all other Sundays as the main service, except on special feast days. The change was dramatic and hardly easy. Many of us loved morning prayer and that service, which had been, as I've suggested, the service of the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States ever since its establishment, coincidentally at the same time as the adoption of the United States Constitution and both in Philadelphia. The late Bud Swers, one of our wardens and most highly devoted parishioners during that time, decried this alteration from morning prayer as perhaps the most difficult matter for adjustment here at St. Stephen's. I can hardly take issue with Bud on this rather keen observation about us and our reactions. Moreover, traditional readings were changed to correspond on a weekly basis with those of the Roman Catholic Church. And not just by accident, of course, the very term Protestant itself was eliminated as a part of our official national title as it now appears in the new prayer book. We had often been informed ahead of time that the replacement of the 1928 prayer book would involve little, if any, more change than the 28 prayer book had been to its predecessor. That changes would, chart, would be <coughs> simply minor were surely not the case. As a member of the vestry at the time, I remember Bishop Hutchins on the eve of the adoption of the new book, and by the way of his own retirement, visiting us and remarking to the vestry, not entirely tongue-in-cheek, that he would welcome the new liturgies, preferably one day after his own retirement. <laughs> Our changeover to the new hymnal of 1982 designed to fit the new prayer book came much more easily, certainly due in large part to the fact that our beloved minister of music, Alec Whiten, could lead us quite happily into it 
Alec had been, perhaps, the most instrumental person in the development of the new hymnal, its selections, its omissions, and its revised canticles. He was considered to be, I think perhaps safely so I can say this, the most knowledgeable American anywhere of Anglican liturgical music. No one, no one could have made the transition more easy, or easier, I should say, for both of our choir and congregation than the much loved and respected Alec. There were other things happening as well, both throughout the church traditionally as well as here along Main Street. In particular, were ones involving church women and lay responsibilities, much welcomed by the vast majority of us here at St. Stephen's. Ruth Crouchley became our first vestry woman in 1974. I might add, what a, wonder, what a wonderful choice. And before long, nine years later, Joyce Nelson would become, believe it or not, senior warden, also a first. My history of the church, which deals with that period of the term, by the way, was, and still is, dedicated to Joyce. Women became lay readers, ministers of communion, ushers, acolytes, and held other positions previously open only to male church members. Oh, and by the way, Jim Chapman, a former senior warden, joined the Altar Guild. <laughs> Hooray for Jim, will wonders never cease. And our ongoing miracle involved even more. As for clergy, Sandra Sandy Belcher became our first female assistant rector in 1986. Other women would soon follow, and many of whom went on to become rectors in churches elsewhere. And not incidentally, just look at us today. But a few months ago, we welcomed the Reverend Whitney Altop as rector of St. Stephen's. I don't know what else to say except hallelujah and thanks be to God. <laughs> Thus, we did fairly well, I think, and very well in some cases in alleviating and solving these varied and once sensitive issues of the late 20th century, though not without misgivings of sorts along the way. Even your present somewhat stodgy historian who once bemoaned the loss of morning prayer, as if you haven't already so surmised, would today feel rather lost 
if Holy Communion, call it the Eucharist now, were not a part of our regular Sunday services here. And we still have quite naturally more rather local matters with which we must come to terms and resolve. The new rectorate of Whitney Altop has begun on a high note with a sense of rejuvenation as I see it anyway. It is clearly reflected in the continuing developments in our music program under the direction of Scott Topurser. There seems to be a new feeling of both hope and expectation everywhere. It certainly is a feeling that I have. All of this bodes well. In closing, I would like to note a seemingly small structural change in our worship services that has caught my attention. The rector's introduction of short opportunities for silent prayer and meditation reminds me a bit of the old morning prayer acknowledgement that the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The emphasis throughout our Book of Common Prayer is certainly on communal prayer and worship, and rightly so, but quiet times for personal reflection can be quite precious as well. We certainly remain impaired by reductions in staff and a need for more funds to keep our property shipshape and running. But our finances, as far as I can tell, are well managed and our lay leadership is strong. We must work to keep things that way. Good things will happen if we do. That is the message I take from our history. We have been more than well provided for by those who have labored and worshiped here in the past three centuries. They have left us a treasure so that we, you and I together, along with those who follow us can live the word of God here at St. Stephen's along Main Street and pass it on for ages yet to come. Thank you and amen.